Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having a lot of fun sharing with you. Before I begin, I wanted to take a moment to thank all of you who are considering supporting my Algonquin Park storytelling efforts by becoming an Algonquin Defining Moments patron or buying some merch. As I've mentioned before, doing either is easy. Just click on the Become a Patron badge or the Gifts and Gear button at the top of my Algonquin Park Heritage website or on my Podbean podcast show page. There are four different patron support levels, each with lots of goodies. My merch collection has over 30 items from coffee cups to water bottles, journals to t-shirts. For this episode, in addition to my own research for my books Treasuring Algonquin and Canoe Tripping Then and Now, most of the content comes from a number of key sources. These include Roderick Mackay's 2018 Algonquin Park, A Place Like No Other, Norm Quinn's 2002 Algonquin Wildlife, Lessons in Survival, George Warecki's 2019 book on J.R. Diamond and his recent 2021 book on Douglas Pimlot, David Euler and Mike Wilton's 2009 book, Algonquin Park, The Human Impact, S. Bernard Shaw's 1998 book, Lake Opiongo, Untold Stories of Algonquin Park's Largest Lake, Richard Miller's 1962 memoir, A Cool, Curving World, George Garland's 1989 glimpses of Algonquin, 30 earliest impressions from earliest times to the present, various articles from the Raven newsletter volumes 1 to 3, the Friends of Algonquin Park publications, Fisheries of Algonquin Park and Fishing in Algonquin Park, other related science and research information reports, IR 07, 10, 13, 14, and 22 that are published by the Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry in conjunction with the Harkness Laboratory of Fisheries Research, led by Director Mark Ridgway, an undated history booklet on the Harkness Laboratory, the Harkness Laboratory of Fisheries Research official website, Dr. N. V. Martin's Lake Opiongo, the ecology of the fish community and of man's effects on it, and, of course, John Robbins' 1943 book, The Incomplete Anglers. I also need to give a huge shout-out to my friend and colleague, Roderick Mackay, that I know is Rory, for his marvelous summary of the key Harkness Lab research results. Not only did he help me make sure that I was getting all of my explanations right, or at least mostly right, he's also been marvelously gracious about tolerating my sometimes off-the-wall storytelling. As you will recall, the last three episodes have basically been a deep dive into the people and research of the Wildlife Research Station. Well, it turns out that wildlife isn't the only subject that has been extensively studied in Algonquin Park. So have the fish. Since the mid-30s, actually, a full decade before the Wildlife Research Station was established. Called the Harkness Laboratory of Fisheries Research, it is located on Lake Opiongo. And like the Wildlife Research Station at Lake Sashajiwan, it has been around longer than I have. In this episode, I'll share the history of the Harkness Fisheries Lab, as it is called by most. I'll also try to provide some insight into some of the people behind the interesting research that has been and is being done there. I've also sprinkled throughout various opportunities to share with you my collection of very interesting fish facts. 
Like the wildlife research episodes, the idea here is that at your next dinner party or Zoom work event, you can use any of these fun fish facts as conversation starters. If you'd like a summary to keep as a reference, please reach out to me at clemsong at algonquinparkheritage.com and I'll send you a little handout. In return, you need to report out to my Algonquin Park Heritage Facebook page what happened. I expect we'll generate a lot of amusing stories. Or at least I hope so. So here we go. Here's a few to get you started. Did you know that at one time, about 21,000 calibrated years before present, Algonquin Park was covered by over two kilometers of ice? Now don't ask me what a calibrated year before present is. Let's just say it was a long, long time ago. There are 1,400 lakes in Algonquin Park, with the seven largest lakes in the park being Opiongo, Cedar, Lavier, Big Trout, North Tee, Manitou, and Hogan. Together, they comprise a surface area greater than the smallest thousand lakes combined. There are 60 native or introduced fish species that live in Algonquin Park's rivers, streams, and lakes. Some species are quite widespread and others inhabit only a few lakes. The most exotic fish name I've found so far is that of the pumpkin seed fish, which apparently lives in just about every Algonquin Park lake. Note that if you want to find out what it looks like, you're going to have to go and get the Fishes of Algonquin Park's booklet from the Friends of Algonquin Park bookstore. The American eel is the only known fish that was once plentiful in Algonquin that now can't be found anywhere. This is due to the hydro dams on the Ottawa River, which halted their annual migrations to and from the Atlantic Ocean. There's a marvelous picture of leaseholder Robert Miller's mother, who caught one in the 30s. It may have been one of the last ones. There are 444 lakes in Algonquin Park that are populated with natural brook trout, also known by anglers as a speckled trout, and about 188 lakes with lake trout. There are 27 artificial barriers to fish passage in Algonquin Park of varying vintage and construction types, and only nine of these are currently in operation. In 2004, about 4,500 trout were harvested in Lake Opiongo, an all-time high, with most anglers coming to fish in Algonquin waters over a six-week period in the spring after ice out. Winter ice fishing has been prohibited since 1955. Now that you have this first set of fun fish facts mastered, let's set the historical stage. First and foremost, it must be known that fish came to the Algonquin Park area in three phases. The first phase was when the landscape became free of glacial ice, with fish species moving into watersheds following the ice retreat. The second phase began about 10,000 years ago, when waters from the receding ice sheet released water through different lower elevation drainage points in the northeast areas of the park. This allowed fish to migrate into park lakes. The third phase began at the start of the 20th century when humans caused authorized and unauthorized introductions of fish not native to the area. It's also worth noting that as best as I can ascertain, ever since humans wandered into the neighborhood, Fishing, also known as angling, has always been a part of life in the Algonquin Park area. For a long time, it was quite self-sustaining, until J.R. Booth's railway line appeared. 
With five railway stops, anglers were quickly attracted to all of the lakes along the route. But it wasn't until the tourist boom of the 19s and the building of the Grand Trunk Railway Hotels and the subsequent heavy advertising of Algonquin Park as a prime fishing location that the pressure on local fish stocks became evident. Those who have listened to Episode 8 about the history of the three railway hotels, the Highland Inn at Cache Lake, Camps Nominegan on Smoke Lake and Minnesing on Burnt Island Lake, will recall that the main activity for men in those days was fishing. As I shared, according to Mary Northway, sometimes as many as 30 people in 10 canoes, including 10 guides and 20 guests, would head out to nearby prime fishing spots on Ragged, Heligone, or Porcupine Lakes. The guides portaged the canoes and carried the food packs, and it is said that one was assigned to carry the pack of liquid refreshments. Few would publicly say what those liquid refreshments were, since alcohol was forbidden in the park. A collection of guides who allegedly knew the area of all of the prized fishing spots worked for the many lodges. All summer they would take various parties on multi-day or week fishing trips throughout the park. There was also extensive airplane traffic as anglers would arrange to be flown in and out of distant lakes. Another common expedition was a two-week fishing trip from Namanegan through Canoe Lake, then north to the Petawawa River, which would carry them east to the town of Pembroke. From Pembroke, the group would load the canoes on the train and return to the Highland Inn. But it wasn't until Forrester Frank McDougall took over as the park superintendent in 1931 that anyone in officialdom took all that much interest in fisheries. Now, this wasn't totally true, as there was some early fish stocking, which I'll talk about in more detail later on in this episode. It, of course, didn't take long for McDougall to become aware that fishing was a common interest among tourists visiting the park. This led him to conclude that the park needed its own fish hatchery. When his proposal for a hatchery was not accepted, McDougall, with the approval of the Department of Game and Fisheries, decided to raise non-native brown trout and rainbow trout for introduction into Park Lakes. He did this by organizing removal of all of the fish in Costello Lake and Brewer Lakes and planting one-year-olds of each species to be raised one species per lake. Now, I haven't been able to find any record of what happened to the lake as a result, but I do know that in today's day and age, even thinking about doing such a thing would be considered scandalous. Unfortunately, from an ecological perspective, it gets worse. Then, as today, in the spring and early summer, black flies and mosquito species were very annoying to tourists at the Highland Inn and Bartlett Lodge. Wanting, of course, to have happy tourists in 1931, 32, and 1933, McDougall had two different kinds of oil for controlling the insects spread on streams and swampy land near Cache Lake, which, as you know, was also the location of the park headquarters. As McDougall noted in 1932, 700 gallons of mosquito oil was used to spray all the low-lying land near headquarters, and 110 gallons of phenotis oil was put into the nearby running streams. This oil, it turned out, diffused and sank to the bottom, making a white cloud, and in about five minutes the surface of the water was covered by millions of dead black fly larvae. Though perhaps a successful short-term method, it's not clear that it worked. As later, McDougall commented, 
We have not learned all there is to know about killing blackflies, which, alas, is as we all know today, is still true 90 years later. The good news, though, is that a few years later, it is likely that MacDougall was aware of the work of J.R. Diamond and realized that changing the types of fish found in lakes or trying to eliminate part of the food chain without research as to the effects of so doing was obviously not a good idea. J.R. Diamond, whom you also met in episode 27, was a professor of zoology at the University of Toronto. Ardent conservationist, he was also the co-founder with Alan F. Coventry of the Federation of Ontario Naturalists in 1931. As a side note, it's likely that in 1934, Diamond asked McDougall to consider the recommendations of a Federation of Ontario Naturalists report recommending the formation of areas to be set apart in parks as natural sanctuaries. This may have been what led to his interest in setting aside wilderness areas for stands of original pine and forestry research, which he did, as you learned, in episode 29. Diamond was also part of an important community of university scientists and graduate students supported by funds from the Department of Zoology at the University of Toronto, known then as the Ontario Fisheries Research Laboratory, which had been established in 1920. As historian George Warecki wrote in his book about Diamond, the Ontario Fisheries Research Laboratory was not only a vehicle for coordinating research and sharing findings, but it also coordinated the conducting of summer field work on Lake Nipigon, Lake Abitibi, and Franks Bay on Lake Nipissing in its early years. When MacDougall learned of J.R. Diamond's work at the University of Toronto, he was all in to the idea of scientific study being an important basis for park management policies, especially as it related to both fisheries and trees, and as you know, much later, wildlife. Now it's important to remember that also at this time, Highway 60 was just being completed. It was the middle of the Great Depression, and the road's construction had been a work relief program, which I've talked about previously a few times. Now what likely few of us know on these original plans was a proposal to construct an additional eastern section of the road that would run from Lake Opiongo northwest to Pembroke. Fortunately, the economic situation during the Great Depression of the 1930s prevented construction of that cross-park section. Instead, the highway joined with other roads at Whitney. But many influential anglers were originally up in arms about the construction of any road through the park. As was noted in Rory Mackay's Algonquin Park, a place like no other, the Ontario Federation of Anglers president, Dr. Arthur James, was quite vocal in 1933. As he said, a limited number of railway stops could be easily patrolled, but it would take a small army to properly prevent indiscriminate camping, poaching, shooting, fire, and other hazards along the extent of the road. The writer of a newspaper article added to the debate by expressing the view, also in 1933, that it would be inexcusably stupid to destroy the unique character of Algonquin Park by allowing road construction beyond what is necessary to provide reasonable access, a sentiment that I am sure all of us feel today. In 1935, MacDougall asked J.R. Diamond to study the biology, what today we would call the ecology of Cache Lake. During that summer of 1935, a temporary field station was established at Sky Mount Cabin on Cache Lake. Five university biologists, 
worked under the direction of Diamond and Fred P. Ide. Though this was Diamond's first foray into Algonquin Park, it wasn't Fred Ide's. He, along with W.E. Ricker, had ventured into Wolf and Ragged Lakes in 1929 to study lake trout. Diamond studied the fish and the physical chemical composition of the lake, while Ide led a team of researchers examining aquatic insects. Alan Coventry, whom everyone called Covers, also joined the party and performed field work on mice and shrews in the area surrounding the lake. After studying Cache Lake, Diamond's conclusion was that the introduction of smallmouth bass, which had occurred in 1899, had upset the natural balance of the lake, depleting the food supply for trout and limiting their numbers. Rather than simply planting more trout, Diamond suggested increasing the population of yellow perch and lake herring as food species for bass. His thinking was that just introducing more trout would only intensify competition for a scarce food supply. He also cautioned against introducing other non-native species into the waters of the park without careful consideration of the ecological effects. Influenced by J.R. Diamond and perhaps other scientists, McDougall gradually began to depend on science as a tool for managing Algonquin Park. In 1936, Diamond went to study Lake Traverse and discovered that bass weren't very numerous there. He suspected that the extensive logging going on in the south end of the lake might have been the culprit. He recommended that the Department of Lands and Forests work to improve the bass's spawning areas and increase its food supply. Also in 1936, Diamond also became a leaseholder on Smoke Lake and was instrumental in the creation of the Smoke Lake Naturalist Club in the early 1940s. This club and the experience that those who participated in Diamond-led nature hikes I discussed in some detail in episode 27 on the history of the Algonquin Park's interpretive programs. As another side note, it's interesting to note that fish weren't the only things that park officials tried to introduce into Algonquin Park in its early days. The funny thing is, at least as compared with today's mindset, new species introduction was seen in those days as improving the park. Now, some of these innovations included trying to attract more waterfowl by establishing wild rice in 1894. Eh, didn't work. Fruit trees. Also didn't work. Oak. Lombardy poplar. And crab apple trees. Nope. European horse chestnuts. Nope. Lilacs. Yes, in certain places, as you'll recall, Ida McCord had a patch outside her door at Shauna Lodge on Rock Lake. Prairie chicken and Rocky Mountain grouse. Nope. Caribou and elk. Nope. Now, the interesting thing about stalking smallmouth bass was the impact that it had. In 1900, bass were also stalked in Tanamacoon and Source Lakes, and later Rainy and Canoe Lakes and Brulee Lakes, with the same lack of understanding. As Cache Lake resident Alex DeHart Bruin reported in 1935, likely in a letter to McDougall, that as far as he was concerned, fishing had been terrible on Cache Lake since 1910. As he wrote at the time, For the first couple of years after 1907, the lake was full of big bass and the trout fishing was fair. Since 1910, a good-sized bass has been a rare catch. So I assume that was about the time the supply of minnows came out. Every bass I've caught in the last few years has been full of crawfish, showing no signs of lack of food of this type. 
I think the lake would be a great deal more attractive if some type of minnow could be reintroduced, which would give the bass more food. Unfortunately, it turned out that in most of the lakes in which the bass had done well, they outcompeted and eliminated the native brook trout. They also figured out how to migrate along different waterways. And by 1928, they reached Lake Obiongo and today occupy 89 lakes. As former Algonquin Park staff biologist Norm Quinn wrote in his 2002 book, Algonquin Wildlife Lessons in Survival, Though the lakes are beautiful and generally support ecosystems that haven't changed in hundreds of years, they aren't very productive, at least for trout. This is because the park sits on hard granite, and the soils are not all that full of nutrients. This means that the transfer of energy up the food chain, from single-celled plants to tiny animals to minnows to trout, is low and slow. Note that those last couple of words are my creative license in case you're wondering, as no self-respecting scientists would ever use that kind of description. I think it's time for a musical interlude. This is another piece by Sarah Spring called Requiem.
In the 1930s, black bass was introduced into Rain Lake and into Sawyer Lake, and speckled or brook trout and lake trout plantings happened at Cochon and Mink Lakes. As a side note, usually restocking of fish was not a fun job, as Jack Wilkinson, co-owner of Kishkadok Lodge, told Rory Mackay in an interview in 1976. In the 1930s, the fish would come up in cans from the hatchery in Pembroke, in those big, old-fashioned cream cans with ice in them. We used to meet the train at 3 a.m. in the morning. We'd go down with our boats and take the fish off the train, and we'd divide them up into these little pack cans, you know, the pump packs that you carry on your back for fire. We used to finally use those. We got sick of carrying these milk cans into the bush, so we found out that we could keep lots of ice in that pack can and that we could put 50 or 60 trout in these pack cans and carry them that way. That's the way we used to pack the fish back to all these lakes. Sometimes the fish hatchings were flown in. According to S. Bernard Shaw's 1998 book on Lake Opiango, pilot Tom Higgins was hired in 1937 for $70 to fly from his base in Limberlost near Huntsville, Ontario, to pick up seven cans, each containing about a 1,000 fish, and weighing 70 pounds each from the Pembroke hatchery, and delivering them to Snake Creek. This discussion of Cache Lake and fish stocking brings to mind a story that Roderick Mackay told in his book Algonquin Park, A Place Like No Other, that shows how times and attitudes have changed, and how little was then known about the new science of ecology. As you may recall, James Wilson was the park superintendent of the Queen Victoria Niagara Falls Park. He was invited by the then Commissioner of Crown Lands, Arthur Hardy, to check out Algonquin Park in the fall of 1893 a few months after it was created. One of the concerns he raised was that though all of the lakes were well stocked with salmon, lake trout, and gray trout, gulls and loons were consuming large numbers of the young annually. He suggested that, quote, it might be advisable to consider the propriety of waging war upon the latter, the loons and gulls, that is, as neither bird is of much commercial value. Now stop and think for a moment what Algonquin Park might have been like today if plans had got ahead with full-scale loon extermination. I shudder to think about it. Apparently, Peter Thompson, the first Algonquin Park superintendent, and many others felt the same way, and just as shocking, also felt that wolves, bears, and foxes should also be destroyed without mercy. There's a part of me that's glad that Peter Thompson didn't stick around very long as park superintendent. Two years, I think it was. Based on Diamond's research results and his recommendations, and a little bit of nudging, McDougall encouraged William J.K. Harkness, a Diamond colleague, and at the time associate professor of limnology at the University of Toronto's Department of Zoology, to make Algonquin Park the main location for the Ontario Fisheries Research Laboratory's fieldwork. For those like me who don't know the term, limnology is the study of lakes. Paleolimnology is the study of lake bottom sediments to see how things change over historic time. The latter is a particularly important tool in the study of climate change, which we'll talk a lot about in a later episode. Both Harkness and Diamond loved fieldwork and were not ivory tower academics, 
Both were very active in natural history interpretation and in encouraging people to become aware of issues related to conservation. They also helped found the Toronto Anglers Association that evolved later into the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters. Harkness, who had become the director of the U of T-based Ontario Fisheries Research Lab in 1924, had a vision that the objectives of this new park service would be to, first, maintain or improve the available supply of game fish by proper scientific management. Two, to use the park as an experimental area and a base from which to develop management of game and fur-bearing mammals and game birds. And third, to establish an educational program and park museum for the benefit of the university's students and park visitors. Fisheries research under Harkness was and continues today in several key areas, including studies of physical and chemical characteristics of lakes which affects fish size and production level, and long-term studies of fish depth distribution, movements, food habits, growth rates, and reproduction, with emphasis mostly on lake trout, brook trout, and smallmouth bass. In 1936, working with the cooperation of Ontario's Department of Lands and Forests and of Game and Fisheries in the University of Toronto, a permanent home for the Ontario Fisheries Research Lab was constructed at the south end of Lake Opiongo at Spruill Bay. Lake Opiongo was chosen because it was so large and was close to all kinds of other waterways in the park. They chose Spruill Bay because it was accessible by a then primitive road that ran to the nearby Opiongo Lodge, a fishing camp that Sandy Haggard had been running since 1925. Those driving the Opiongo Road today will note that straight sections of it looked like they could almost have been made for a railway line. That is because the road had been a railway line. In 1902, a logging railway had been built there to deliver logs to the St. Anthony Lumber Company sawmill at Whitney. It operated up until about 1910. But after that, the line was no longer used, although it isn't totally clear when the rails were taken up. Some sources suggest that it wasn't until 1924. A modest log cabin became the permanent headquarters at Lake Opiongo, and two smaller field stations were set up on Lake of Two Rivers and Cache Lake. Here's a description of what that first experience was all about, as written by Richard Miller in his 1962 book, A Cool, Curving World. The road into Algonquin Park was at that time little more than a rail, with many low swampy places, sharp curves, and abrupt little hills. The frost was coming out of the ground, and the crooked ruts were full of water with a thin ice crust from the night before. The old car, a 1925 seven-passenger Studebaker sedan, lurched violently from side to side with uncomfortable abruptness. When we finally arrived at Lake Opiongo, it was getting late and cold. The trail, which had become progressively more primitive as we neared our goal, suddenly petered out completely on the edge of what appeared at first to be an enormous muskeg. It was a broad, flat, depressed area, almost covered with low shrubbery, alders, willows, and acres and acres of sheep laurel and Labrador tea. Here and there, patches of steaming water were visible. As the evening chill grew sharper, a mist rose off the swamp and made the air damp and raw. We got out of the car. The smell of spring in the north was overwhelming. 
It's a smell hard to describe, a compound of breaking buds, very early blossoms, and rich wet earth, invigorating and yet somehow strangely nostalgic and subduing. We were also overwhelmed by insects, vast angry crowds of mosquitoes and blackflies. Soon rivulets of blood ran down behind our ears into our collars and from eyebrows into eyes. The trail ended at a small landing, which stuck out into the swamp. Tied to it was an ancient, battered, open launch with a Model T Ford engine. This, announced Fred Fry, was the fish lab boat. We squished around in the damp moss, transferring the contents of the car to the boat. Then, abandoning the sturdy Studebaker, we pushed out into the wet tangle of brush to find a narrow, winding, brush-free river, looking black, mysterious, and sinister in the fading light. This led to Lake Opiongo. I shall never forget that first evening in the park, the half-dark, the swarms of bloody hungry flies, the fog rising eerily from the smooth, black-shining water, and above all the great frog chorus, obliterating everything with sound. Eventually we emerged from the creek into a good-sized open piece of water. Here we found a forestry station and a traveler's cabin shelter. The forestry shelter cabin was a small one, about 14 by 16 feet, and built of logs. The logs had been squared so that they sat on top of one another as smoothly as bricks. At the ends they were very accurately fitted together, in such a way that there appeared to be a vertical square timber in each corner. The whole construction was so solid that there was scarcely room for any caulking. Later I assisted in the building of a much larger cabin of the same construction. This new building that Miller helped build was at the location that became the fisheries lab's permanent site. In those early years, some researchers used an abandoned camp at Costello Lake that had been used during the highway construction a couple of years previously. Use of this site was discontinued in 1937 and 1938 as additional quarters were built at Lake Opiongo. Like the Wildlife Research Station, the fisheries lab had its own unique cook story. This time it was a student from Iceland who'd come for the first summer to hold sway over the kitchen. According to Richard Miller, his knowledge of English and cooking were not great. For example, the first time they brought him a lake trout to cook, he proceeded to drop the entire thing, including its head, tails, fins, and insides, into boiling water, to which he added about a cupful of sugar. But the new cook, as Miller said, was very fond of music and lamented the lack of a piano in camp. But he soon found a substitute. The previous occupants to our camp had built an enormous garbage heap in a convenient depression beside the cookhouse. About one-third of this consisted of empty bottles that had contained scotch whiskey. They were all the same size and shape. Our cook picked out about 60 of them out of the garbage and tied a string around the neck of each one and fastened it to a nail driven into an old grease rack. The cook strung his bottles in two rows, one above the other. He then tuned them by putting in water a very little in the base bottle, and progressively more as the scale ascended until the treble bottles were almost full. The upper row provided sharps and flats. He had a little over four octaves. The bottles gave out a clear musical note when struck with wooden hammers he had whittled out of stove wood. 
the organ was a huge success. Our cook now spent his evenings in musical composition. He would sit at the kitchen table for a while working on a score, and then rush outside and run madly up and down his rows of bottles, testing his new passages. By 1940, a kitchen and water laboratory were in place, and in the 1950s, a dining hall and lounge, cottages for married staff, and cabins for students were added. Harkness remained the director until 1946, when he went on to become the chief of the Fish and Wildlife Division and of the Department of Lands and Forests. Dr. Ray Langford took over from him as the new lab director, followed by Nick Martin in 1956. In 1961, the facility was renamed the Harkness Laboratory of Fisheries Research. That first year, under the direction of Dr. Harkness, the park's first creel survey, or creel census, was initiated. For those who are unaware, the term creel comes from the name of the wicker basket that Scottish fishermen use, or should I say wear, at their side in which they keep their caught fish. Anglers were asked to share information about their fishing activities on Lake Apiango, so as to determine where fishing was good, where fish stocks were depleted, and what types and sizes of fish were being caught and how long it was taking to catch them. Those conversations evolved into an annual creel survey, which has now been running for nigh on 85 years. All of the lodge owners were encouraged to have all of their fishing party guests fill out and return creel survey cards. What was really interesting was the public response. As George Warecki in his 2019 book on J.R. Diamond noted, the enthusiastic cooperation from park visitors and cottagers alike enabled park officials to accumulate data on the size, numbers, and rates of growth for various fish species, which drove far more efficient fish restocking policy than might otherwise have occurred. Now, self-interest did drive some of this enthusiasm, for as Mary Thomas from Kishkadok Lodge on Cedar Lake reported in 1939, Fishing this season has been terrible, with visitors often not catching any at all. Our guests want to fish for bass. Today, an angler arriving at the dock at Lake Apiango through the trout angling season from May to the end of September still can expect to be met by a summer student working for the Creel Survey. With permission, their catch is taken to a small building next to the dock. Their catch of lake trout is measured for length and weighed, and then taken from them is a structure called an otolith that is found in the fish's ear canal. These otoliths show annual growth rings that can be magnified and read like tree rings to determine the age of the fish. In catch-and-release studies, which are sometimes done, a small sample of scales from a fish can also be used to determine age, though that method isn't as accurate, especially in slow-growing species like lake trout. Today, having run for more than 85 years, the Algonquin Park Creel Survey is one of the largest studies in the world of a specific animal population and helps in estimating the sustainability of fish populations. By the way, Several tidbits of knowledge that I didn't know until researching this episode is not only that fish have ear canals, 
but also how these researchers actually go about tagging fish. As most of you know, we typically think of tagging as putting on a collar of some sort on the animal. But fish don't have a neck or anything on which to put a collar, so researchers invented what is called a T-tag or a pit tag. T-tags are these small colored tubes that are inserted near the base of a fish's dorsal fin. On each tag is marked a unique code, so that a specific fish can be identified if it is caught again. Now, of course, some external tags wear off or are torn off by catching on things in the water. So later, pit or passive integrated transponder tags were invented. These types of ID tags, encased in a glass casing, are injected into the fish using a 12-gauge needle. The tag number gets activated when the fish swims near a tag reader that has emitted an electromagnetic field. This is certainly a lot easier than having to re-catch the fish and read the tag. Today, technology has advanced significantly for researchers not only tag fish, but have also figured out how to study fish behavior through their movements, this so-called fish listening. Now, I note again, these are my words, as scientists aren't really listening with earbuds or anything, and I'm sure are cringing at my use of the word. But fish listening uses acoustic receivers and receiver arrays. When installed, mostly in small to medium-sized lakes, scientists can track the movement of the fish. Over the years, studies have taken place on a daily and seasonal basis on Lake Louisa, parts of Lake Opiango, Welcome Scott, Stringer Lakes, and recently Lake of Two Rivers. Fish researchers investigate such topics as habitat selection by these species, spatial movements of male and females when mating, and spatial separation between different species of fish. Okay, so it's time for a fish fact break. Here are some other interesting fish facts that I've been learning about fish behavior, which have me curiously enthralled about fish in a way that I never have before. So don't forget, try them out at your next dinner party, lunch date with your boss, or Zoom meeting event, and report their reactions on my Algonquin Park Heritage Facebook site. So it turns out that lake trout on Lake Opiango appear to show fidelity to specific lake areas, and have clearly demonstrated that they like to attack schools of cisco fish, their prey, from below. Smallmouth bass have demonstrated some interesting behavior in that the spring equinox is a really important date for them that triggers their annual activity cycle. Recent studies at Lake of Two Rivers using acoustic location techniques have shown that lake trout and smallmouth bass occupy much different parts of the lake in summer but similar parts of the lake in winter. Different species of fish that aren't prey to each other keep some degree of spatial separation. Now, I always thought that all fish that aren't prey to one another liked each other and therefore would socialize with each other. Now, I realize that I'm introducing, however accidentally, a little bit of Ernest Thompson Seton, and that may or may not be a good thing. For those unaware, Ernest Thompson Seton was known for attributing human feelings to animals in his stories, and so once again I apologize to all scientists everywhere. Taken together, in general, the researchers who have studied lake trout, brook trout, and smallmouth bass in detail 
and over the long term have concluded some interesting things, such as fish depth distribution, movements, food habits, growth rates, and reproduction. Many of these hundreds of studies, which are all listed on the Harkness Lab website, have had impacts way beyond just Algonquin Park, but into other Ontario parks and other parks across Canada. So just who were these researchers at the Harkness Lab, and what kinds of research topics did they investigate? For this deep dive, pun intended, you'll have to wait until our next episode. I do hope you've enjoyed this history into the early days of the Harkness Laboratory of Fisheries Research, and I really look forward to sharing some more details in our next episode. In the meantime, if you'd like to learn more, check out harkness.ca on the web. You can also go to algonquinparkheritage.com where I've posted a number of pictures. And if you'd like to learn more about Sarah Springs music, check out sarahspringpiano.ca. Until then...